Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today's podcast, which is on the topic of an emerging market showdown, LATAM versus China. Should LATAM or China, or perhaps both regions, be part of a long-term allocation in your portfolio? Well, let's find out how our Julius Baer experts think about this topic. My name is Cheng Hinsaw, Head of Equity Specialist Asia, and with me today are two colleagues. Firstly, Esteban Polidura, Head of Americas, Advisory and Products. Hello, Cheng Hin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we also have with us Richard Tang, Head of Research Hong Kong. Hello, Cheng Hin, and hello to Esteban. Welcome, gentlemen. Before we get into a discussion on Latin versus China, let me give our clients some color on the size of these regions. In 2020, LATAM and Caribbean had a combined GDP of 4.8 trillion and a population size of 654 million. China, on the other hand, recorded GDP of 11.8 trillion and a population of 1.4 billion people. Now back to the topic of today's discussion. Clearly, these two economic powerhouses do offer significant investment opportunities for our clients which is why we have both Esteban and Richard to tell us where we should be putting our money to work. We'll kick off with the economic outlook for these two regions. And let's start with you, Richard. China's GDP growth rates peaked at 14% in 2007 and has been trending down since. The latest official PMI numbers show some signs of moderation. Would this change the central bank's stance on monetary policy? And what is our bank's economic outlook for China this year? Sure, Chenghen. First, I would say that the slowing GDP growth in China over the past decade is simply a natural path to go down as China gets larger. And now it has become the second largest world economy. Of course, I wouldn't deny that aging demographics does have some contribution to the slowdown. And this is what most other major economies are also dealing with. That's why China has recently introduced the three-child policy and it has aggressively pushed forward all the different measures to stimulate the birth rate. We'll have to see if all these initiatives will be successful or not. Right, right. And as for the most recent quarters, yes, PMI has shown some signs of weakness. And in response to that, the PBOC, which is the Central Bank of China, has surprised the market with a comprehensive 50 basis point cut to the required reserve ratio. This has raised quite a lot of uh, question in the investor community whether China is now shifting back to an easing cycle from previously the neutral to tight monetary policy stance. But we think it is more likely a marginal fine-tuning rather than a complete shift of policy stance to full-blown easing. Why do you think so, Richard? Why is a full-on easing cycle unlikely? Well, that's because policymakers in China are still very, very concerned about the leverage. So they will lean towards a neutral equilibrium unless China growth data really substantially disappoints, and we are not seeing this happening. I see. And what about the economic outlook for China? Yeah, similar to the US, the peak of growth momentum is already behind us. We forecast that the peak of GDP growth in China to be in the first quarter, and the peak in the US to be in the second quarter. We'll likely see a gradual slowdown in the year-on-year growth rate in China GDP in the coming quarters because the low base effect is now diminishing. But overall, for the entire 2021, we still see the annual growth rate to be well above 8%. 
and we forecast roughly mid 5% growth for next year. Thank you, Richard. Let's move to Esteban. In addition to our bank's economic outlook for Latin America in 2021, can you also tell us why inflation is a topic of concern, especially for Latin America? Sure thing, Cheng Hin. Well, Julius Bears uh, continues to expect only a very protracted recovery in Latin America, lagging other regions. Consequently, we believe that the region will only reach pre-crisis economic output levels in 2022 or later. The pandemic situation remains challenging, and the slow progress on the vaccination front raises the threat of renewed outbreaks. Rising social tensions in the region have started to feed into election results, potentially making economic policy uh, making more volatile in the years ahead. As for inflation, it has sharply risen across the region, challenging the ability of central banks to keep monetary policy accommodative at this time when the economic recovery is just uh, incomplete. Many countries across Latin America have experienced a sharp rise in inflation expectations since the beginning of the year. Especially food and fuel prices have increased sharply, reflecting the sharp increase in commodity prices in the second quarter of 2020 and lag pass-through effects due to currency depreciation. Food and fuel prices typically represent a larger share of the national inflation basket in the region. Brazil stands out in terms of upside inflation pressure, uh, prompting its central bank to hide the reference rate twice by 75 basis points in the recent past. In Mexico, the door for further rate cuts has closed as well, following a sharp pickup in inflation dynamics. Actually, the opposite has started to happen. Last month, Mexico raised its benchmark interest rate by 25 basis points, and which was definitely a surprise. Consensus expected it to remain on hold, and of course now consensus has changed. The higher rate environment triggered by higher U.S. rates and by a pickup in local inflation has compounded the risks to the fiscal outlook for several countries. In Colombia, for instance, the government is pressured to turn off fiscal support despite the economic situation in order to avoid an erosion of credibility. I see. That's a pretty different picture from what is going on in China. Well, the topic of today's discussion, LATAM versus China showdown, may sound like there is some rivalry between the two regions, but the reality is that they may be more closely linked than we think. In February this year, Time magazine reported that the U.S. and China were both battling for influence in Latin America. Let's begin with Esteban. Why do you think LATAM is so important to the U.S. and China? And please share with us how China and LATAM are linked. Definitely. Well, in terms of trade, today China is the top or a top trading partner, let's say, for Latin America, along, of course, with the U.S. Latin America's uh, exports largely consist of raw materials and commodities copper, iron ore, oil, and uh, soybeans. The relevance of China for the region has been evident since the pandemic began as Latin America has been relying on China's middle-class demand for beef from Uruguay, copper from Chile, oil from Colombia, and soybeans from Brazil, commodities that are helping the region soften the economic impact of COVID-19. But the aggregate numbers do not show the discrepancies within the region, though. For example, Mexico is traditionally dependent on trade with the U.S., which accounts for about 80% of the country's exports. However, Brazil, Chile, and Peru have more than 40% of their exports destined to China. Overall, Latin America benefits from the relationship with China by higher commodity prices, increased growth, 
increased investments and uh, some benefits in financial conditions, for example. Oh, that's that is interesting. Um, but how about on the political front? In the world of politics, of course, China is seen as an alternative to the US and the Europe by some of the Latin American nations when it comes to creating economic growth or to funding infrastructure projects and for general support in the international community. 19 governments throughout the region have already joined the Belt and Road Initiative to benefit from the $1 trillion transcontinental trade and infrastructure network that has been announced. How about you, Richard? Do you agree with me? Totally, Esteban. I always think that the trade numbers between Latin America and China have underestimated the importance of their trade relationship. LATAM may not count as a very large portion of China's bilateral trades, but the number doesn't tell us about the dependence. The entire world is critically dependent on LATAM for commodities, and China is, of course, no exception. And you know, the top three countries for copper reserve are Chile, Australia, and Peru. So if China does not import from Australia for whatever reasons, it has to rely on the other two. Also, do you remember when the trade dispute between China and U.S. was at its worst? China stopped importing soybeans from the U.S. and it imported them from Latin America instead. And we probably know that Brazil has the world's largest freshwater resource. And in a world where freshwater is becoming more and more scarce, China would just naturally want to be a close trading partner with the Latin America. Very interesting. Thank you both. Now that we have clear insights, let's try to seek out investment opportunities in both regions. Richard, tell us more about a recent thematic report you wrote about wealthy China, healthy China, pretty China. Yeah, sure. Wealthy, healthy, and pretty China uh, clearly correspond to the consumption, healthcare, and environment themes. First, as we are heading towards a bipolar world and deglobalization is taking place, consumption will replace exports to become one of the key drivers of China's economic growth. So most of us think of luxury when talking about Chinese consumption. Of course, luxury goods are still an attractive investment idea, but in the future, consumption growth will come from rural demand instead. In fact, the rural growth has outpaced the urban in both income as well as consumption expenditure. The other angle is the increasing preference towards local brands among young Chinese. So companies with the elements of number one, rural exposure, and two, local brands will have the most benefits. Now, on healthcare, obviously, the natural drivers are demographics and rising awareness of health. And similar to the other countries, more and more Chinese are actually suffering from chronic diseases, so the healthcare expenditure would have to increase. But there is some policy uncertainty in the healthcare space, isn't there? I understand that most investors are probably quite concerned about all these government policies in the healthcare sector, which a lot of the time does affect the company economics. However, the policies are also accelerating consolidation at the same time, so that should benefit the innovative leaders as well as the national champions. Oh, by the way, digital healthcare is now the new trend, and we expect it to become a 2 trillion RMB market by 2025. And then Moving on to the environment theme, actually, Chang, let me ask you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, Richard, China now accounts for 28% of global CO2 emissions, and it has pledged to go net carbon neutral by 2060. This means a great deal to the world, and there must be a lot of investment opportunities in the renewable space. Can you share with us some of your thoughts? 
Indeed, Chen environmental protection has moved up the policy agenda after that net carbon neutral pledge, and this would drive renewables to gradually replace coal as the dominant energy source in China. And because the electricity cost from solar and wind is now at par with traditional fossil fuel, the economics now makes sense for a shift to the renewable energy. Solar and wind now only account 15% of the power mix in China, but we forecast the ratio to double by 2030. And we also expect a sustainable increase in the penetration of electric vehicles. And then to achieve the net zero target, upstream commodities may also need to be reshaped with persistent supply control. And this in turn will support the prices. Thank you, Richard. And let's shift gears to LATAM now. Esteban, when investors think of investing in LATAM, we often think about riding the commodities upcycle, population growth, a rising middle class, etc. Do all the countries offer similar investment opportunities? And if that's not the case, help us identify how we should differentiate between them. Of course, Chengin. Well, there are indeed important differences to take into account. Let's start with Mexico. Mexico is mainly a manufacturing story linked to the U.S. consumption. The strong U.S. recovery has helped to lift exports and increase remittances, while domestic demand is also showing signs of recovery amid easing of lockdown measures. Moreover, the tight fiscal policy should continue to provide some leeway in monetary policy setting going forward. That said, the government's ongoing unwillingness to increase fiscal stimulus will likely continue to remain a drag on investments going forward. Brazil, Chile, and Colombia, for example, are driven by commodities and therefore by China. In Brazil, recent economic data has been stronger than anticipated due to the partial easing of mobility restrictions and also due to a better external backdrop. But there is a lack of monetary ammunition to reactivate the Brazilian economy even further, and the President Bolsonaro is under continuous pressure to increase fiscal stimulus. This comes at a difficult time, as the government has little room to extend this fiscal stimulus further without breaching the spending cap, which is Brazil's main fiscal anchor. Chile's economy is expected to benefit from upturns in private consumption, for example, improving employment and the government stimulus also from fixed investments, especially in the mining sector, and from exports. This is clearly linked to higher copper prices. You also said it, Chile is the main producer of copper in the world. Nevertheless, still low consumer confidence and high uncertainty due to the reform of the Chilean constitution and the presidential elections in the second half of the year are likely to limit a stronger recovery in domestic demand. And as far as Colombia goes, an environment of prevailing high oil prices is definitely positive. However, large fiscal deficits are a concern and are thus pushing the government to approve a tax reform, something that has not been well received by society. Another source of worry is the government's capacity to reduce debt going forward, which is losing uh, credibility. In turn, Standard & Poor's and Fitch cut Colombia's credit rating below investment grade during the last couple of months. Do you have a preference between them for both near-term and longer-term opportunities? Definitely. And as, as you can see, there are opportunities and risks in the region. Currently, our equity strategy research team has a neutral rating for Latin America, as well as individually for the markets under coverage. This is Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. As far as fixed income goes, our team sees opportunities in Mexico's hard currency sovereign bonds, which are rated by opportunistic. 
but there are select opportunities in the corporate bond space across the region that are also worth looking at. Thank you, Esteban. Now that we know the immense opportunity set for these two regions, it's also worthwhile to remind our audience that when investing in emerging markets, while there are ample long-term opportunities, one also has to have a good understanding of the nearer-term risks. Esteban, with regards to politics, Latin America is at a very difficult juncture. It faces a raft of elections running into 2022 at a time when the COVID impact has been painful, so deadly, widespread in so many countries in the region. Now, is this a recipe for potential change in economic policy and policy direction for the region? Yes, as you correctly point out, politics are taking center stage. After relatively a quiet electoral calendar year in 2020, activity will pick up pace this year. Actually, it has already started to pick up pace. In Mexico, congressional elections took place on June the 6th and President López Obrador lost the qualified majority in Congress. This reduced the risk of further changes to the Mexican constitution and is therefore constructive for the economy and investments, according to many specialists. In Brazil, the decision of the Supreme Court to annul all convictions against former President Lula da Silva paves the way for him to run for the presidency next year. President Bolsonaro's approval rating has fallen sharply, due to his mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic, and Lula is currently leading the polls. Investors are bracing themselves for a polarized election between the right and the left, with more moderate candidates so far attracting little attention. Argentina will hold legislative elections in October, with half of the seats in the lower house and one-third of the seats in the upper house up for grabs. The government's approval rating has been on a steady decline, since the beginning of the pandemic, fueling speculation that an organized and a united opposition could take control of the lower house. This would be welcomed by the market, probably as it limits the ability of the current administration to pass populist legislation, avoid a deeper crisis, and uh, many other things. Oh, that's good to hear. And yeah, definitely. And in, in Chile, The constitutional convention election in mid-May yielded a negative result for the market. The right-wing government's uh, coalition failed to secure enough seats to exert veto power in the redrafting of the Chilean constitution, which would limit the risks for extreme outcomes. Not only the coalition, but also other traditional parties scored badly in the election, with uh, independent and indigenous parties securing the majority of the seats. This development increases the risk for a significant departure from the current institutional model in Chile and also makes the outcome of the presidential election in November a little bit more uncertain. In Colombia, the government presented last week a $4 billion tax reform bill to Congress. The bill would increase businesses' taxes by about 4 percentage points to 35% from 2022 onward and collect additional resources from fighting evasion and cutting public spending. The tax reform is crucial to ensure fiscal stability following the sharp deterioration in debt metrics last year. Lastly, in Peru, electoral authorities finally declared Pedro Castillo Peru's news president. He will take office on July the 28th. Although Castillo softened some of his promises in the latter stage of his campaign, the market remains I would say a little bit sensitive to his pledge to rewrite Peru's constitution to nationalize strategic sectors of the economy, for example, 
mining and gas, also to raise taxes and royalties on mining companies, and to launch an agrarian reform to put a halt on fair competition from imports, as he often highlights. So it looks like there's a lot going on politically in Latin America that we should be aware of and when investing or trading in Latin America. Well, Richard, the um, recent headlines on the uh, internet companies haven't been too favorable. After the Chinese authorities placed restrictions on the number of new online video games back in 2018, things quietened down on the regulatory front thereafter, but they have surfaced again of late. Could you tell us whether the impact of such measures to Chinese tech company valuations are going to be long-lasting and whether our clients should be worried about their investments? Yeah, that's a good question, Shane. Well, I think at least in the near term, the regulations would put a cap on how much the valuation can rebound. Because the market indeed pays a lower valuation to a regulated sector compared to an unregulated one. And if we look at the regulations announced in the sector so far, they broadly cover three areas. One, antitrust. Two, fintech. And three, data security. We've always been less concerned on the first two, but data security falls under the national security in China. So the market will be much more worried whether the regulations will be a little bit more stringent. And we think these uncertainties could pressure the sector for a little while more. But equally, I wouldn't say the sector is dead. The digital economy is still an integral part of China, and it's also important for China's competition with the U.S. I don't think the purpose of these regulations is to kill the companies. I would say, instead, it's more like flying a kite. When the kite flies too high, you need to pull the string, and at the same time, you won't pull it so hard that the kite would drop onto the ground. So right now, our best guess is that towards the end of this year, we may see the regulatory intensity to subside a little bit, and then we could see a more sustained recovery of the sector. Well, thank you, Richard and Esteban, for all the insights you have shared today. Ladies and gentlemen, what an interesting conversation we've had on the opportunity set for Latin America and China. We have now come to the end of today's podcast and we hope that you found it interesting and useful. Please do join in for all the other upcoming podcasts. And until then, we wish you the very best and goodbye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.